I'm going to ask you to please stand. We're going to read the text of Scripture together. I'll read it and process these words as uh, you uh, follow along with me. From 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties, in behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, as we open your word now, I ask that your spirit would be our teacher and guide us into your truth, for your word is truth. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Genesis 25, verse 8 says, And Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. Wouldn't it be great to reach the end of your life and have Abraham's epitaph? (laughs) Yeah, I'd be satisfied with life too if everything worked out great for me like it did for Abraham. Well, not so fast. Not so fast. Abraham experienced heartache, childlessness, marital problems, public conflict, child-rearing problems, social scandal, public humiliation, cowardice, family conflict, and business conflicts. But other than that, his life was a breeze. But Abraham's contentment was not anchored in his circumstances, but in something else entirely. Our entire entertainment industry is is actually financed by discontent, isn't it? The purpose of advertising is to make you feel discontent with what you have, and actually that you need what they're selling. And if you already have one, but you don't have the right one, then you need to get the one that they have, and then you'll be happy. Then, then you'll be content. Sometimes we look at other people who have the things that we want, and we wish we had what they had. We wish that we had the life that they have. We wish that we had the family that they have, or the circumstances that they have. And we kind of feel like maybe we've done something wrong and they've done something right, and we wish that we'd done whatever was right so that we'd have what they have and look the way that they look and feel the way that they feel about life. And we sometimes identify a little too closely with the prayer of one dear lady who said, Lord, please change my metabolism. Give me her metabolism. And Lord, if it's all the same to you, would you please give her mine. In Genesis 3, Satan convinced Eve 
God is holding out on you? Did God tell you no about something? You don't have what you really need to be happy. Just listen to me and then you'll be happy. Then you'll be content. Author Mike Cosper suggests that we are not fundamentally rational creatures. We are desiring creatures. Discontent doesn't capture our minds as much as it captures our imaginations. And he argues this, quote, consumers aren't rationally convinced that they'll learn to flatten their bellies in four weeks, preserve their youth, and discovering a, discover a satisfying sex life. But sin, sin panders not to our minds, but to our imaginations. And that feeds our discontent. And what we imagine, what we imagine becomes an idol that then enslaves us, and we are hooked. God is holding out on me. And Satan smiles. That's why we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, so that biblical thinking will anchor our imagination and it will anchor that in a reality that is far greater than anything that we can imagine. A greater hope, a much bigger promise. God himself is to become our desire, our deepest desire. And that will address any problem that we have with contentment. I am sure that this might sound like I'm getting in the weeds a little bit with a long introduction, but Scripture made, makes it clear that <clears throat> contentment is to be found in the Lord, even when you're addressing extremes. I'm going to read you a, a not unfamiliar uh, passage from Philippians. You will recognize it. Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now listen to this. And, and by the way, this ends with the statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I know we think that the proper application of that verse is when we go out onto the wrestling mat and we want to beat the other guy. That's not what that's about. Listen to what he says. I have learned how to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to, there's a how to, get along with humble means. And I also know how to, there's a how to, live in prosperity. There's a how-to about living with riches? Yeah, there is. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. Those extremes and anything in between, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment is anchored in Christ who strengthens me. Does God want us to be content? Absolutely. But contentment in the Bible doesn't mean getting what we want, but in changing what we want. We change it to something that's bigger, something that's deeper, something that's greater. Webster's defines contentment this way, quote, being happy enough with what one has or is, not desiring something more or different. Now, that sounds to me kind of like just making do. 
But actually, it doesn't go far enough. The goal of biblical contentment is not just to be satisfied with what you have. It's to be satisfied with God himself, the one who gave you what you have. Uh, It's a crude analogy, but it's true. At Christmas, we, we do want our children to be happy with the gifts that they receive, right? But we want them to be happier with the giver. Our main text is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And I, I, I want you to realize, and I'd love for you to read the whole cha- all the chapters 10 through 13, the whole surrounding context. Because in these chapters, Paul is dealing with rogue leaders in the church, rogue leaders at Corinth who claim that Paul is a weak leader. In chapter 11, verse 13, he says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he invites them then, kind of unbelievable, but he says, let's compare scars. If, if you think about it, actually what he is saying is, I am willing to die for Christ. Are they? It, it's a crazy comparison, but it seems like it's the only category that the Corinthians will listen to. So I'm going to read to you a, a little bit of that from chapter 11, starting with verse uh, uh, 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they, these rogue leaders, are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And he just interrupts the whole thing and says, I speak as if insane. I mean, he knows this is just crazy doing this comparison of scars. I I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep, in the ocean. I have been, and listen to the common word, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, Dangers among false brethren. Is there a common word there? No. Dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things. That's just an amazing way to put it. Those external things, apart from such external things. There is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And then he goes on to describe in the next verses how God gave him a glimpse of heaven, of what it was like, but it was beyond the ability to put into words that could be understood. However, to ground him, Because he had that glimpse of heaven, to ground him in this world of suffering, to keep me from exalting myself, he says, and that leads us into our text, to keep me from exalting myself, God gave him more suffering, a thorn in the flesh. Now, the nature of Paul's thorn in the flesh is not identified in Scripture, 
Some say it was a person. I, I have a different view. I think it was a physical ailment, maybe having to do with his eyes. He's already called out people. He doesn't call out a person here. He's already called out the rogue apostles. And, and to the Galatians, he says, I know that when I was with you, you would have, would have plucked out your eyes for me if you could. And at another place, he says, you see with what large letters I write these things. So that may have been what it was, but it's only mentioned as something that's a gift from God, a messenger from Satan. It's only actually mentioned explicitly here, and it's mentioned as a part of Paul's growth. Now, back to our our text. Here we see what godly contentment looks like. And we're going to focus mostly on verses 9 and 10, and we're going to focus mostly on two words, the word sufficient in verse 9 and the word delight in verse 10. In verse 9, my grace is sufficient. Now, throughout the New Testament, the word for sufficient in both noun and verb forms actually means enough. It's enough. And it often has an object for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And it's clear from other passages that what Paul is saying is that God himself is enough for me. In the midst of persecution, in that persecution, whether it comes from outside the church or even inside the church, or even in the midst of a severe health problem like that thorn, God himself is enough for me which challenges me to ask, is God enough for me? Not just his gifts, but the giver. Is he enough for you? And Satan says, God is never enough. In Satan's plan, contentment is a beast that never gets fed enough, and it always wants more. Compare. Compare with that other person. By contrast, however, godly contentment recognizes that even though every good and perfect gift comes from God, from above, our contentment is not found in the every good and perfect gift that, we, that at least is tied to this world, but rather in the one who gives those gifts. Every good gift that's tied to this world is going to fade and die. But if your contentment is in God, then you can say with Paul, to me... To live is Christ. What about those rogue apostles? Would they die for Jesus? I don't think so. They're on a power trip. But Paul is saying to me, to live is Christ, and to die is more of Christ. It's gain. I move from the immediate to the immediate presence of Jesus. People who find their contentment in the things of this world cannot say that. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul's enemies at Corinth would never say that. I've worked closely with a a, a group called the Officers Christian Fellowship. It's uh, career military, all branches. I've worked closely with them for 40 years. And uh, a friend of mine named Eric, wrote me in the last months of his cancer, quote, my confidence was always grounded in my own physical abilities as much as in my faith in God. 
This fight is different. This is the first time I've relied on God's love for me when I haven't been in a position of physical strength. Uh, Eric is a 47-year-old Army colonel, and he was the head of the Leadership Research Institute at West Point. They know leadership there. And he was a very fit ranger. He continues, This is not an easy position for me, but Christ now owns me in a new and deeper way. It's hard to describe. It feels good, but it's exhausting. Near the end, he wrote, Trying to run through the finish line, brother. Not to, but through. I wrote back, I'm praying that you'll run that race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus. And within seconds, he wrote me his last email. Is it crazy that I can't wait to see him? And a few days later, I did his funeral at West Point. My question to you is this, is God enough for you? If you can answer yes, then that means that everything else will also be enough for you. Does that make sense? If God is enough for you, then everything else will be too. If God is not enough for you, then nothing else will, will be. And whatever you put in his place is going to become an idol. Whatever you put in the place where you're seeking contentment. Like what? Okay, here are some options. In Satan's plan... Where do people normally search for contentment? People, possessions, and circumstances. And I think these are worth delving into for a moment because our minds are easily deceived. Sometimes we rely on a person, a parent, a husband, a wife, or maybe even a child for contentment. But in the first place, people are not immortal. Every, everyone here knows that one phone call can upend your life. And in the second place, People will disappoint you. Let's play if only. If only he or she would love me. If only my boss would appreciate me. If only my dad would express some sort of approval for me. If only my children would live for the Lord. If only my friends were not shut, would not shut me out. Then I'll be content. Then I'll be happy. Now those are not bad things. But when your contentment is anchored in other people, you give them power over you that God does not intend for another human being to have. If I can stretch a biblical par parable quite a bit, actually, the father of the prodigal son did not allow his son's moral failures to ruin his life. There would be pain, yes, but his life was not bound up in the poor cho choices that his child made. Even spiritual leaders in a church will disappoint you. And by the way, they'll be the first ones to tell you so. Be careful about looking to people because if, if you get absorbed, remember I, we talked about the imagination and fantasies a moment ago. If you get absorbed in what his life is like, what his wife looks like, uh, how her children behave so beautifully and how talented they are and how her husband is such a wonderful provider compared to yours. Compare, compare, compare. If you get absorbed in that and, and your mind gets captured by that, your imagination runs wild with your fantasies about that kind of a thing, 
what would you actually do about it that won't ruin everything and everyone around you? See, we don't think. We mentioned people. Here's another area, possessions. If only I could get out from under this debt. If only I could get that house. If only I could have that car. If only I could have that new iPhone. Now, I know that's a godly goal, right? The new iPhone. <clears throat> then I'd be content. Then I'd be happy. Of course, and it's not wrong, again, to, to want some of those things. But will they make you more godly? Oh, thank you. Been waiting for it. Didn't realize I was in a Pentecostal church. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Well, listen, listen to what the Apostle Paul uh, writes to Timothy. Godliness, listen to this, godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. We shall be what? Content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful devices which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God. Author of Hebrews writes, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Do you hear that? God gives us himself. From 2001 to 2003, our church met here in Bachman. So in the moment ago when we had the silent prayer, and it wasn't really silent, we'd been there. <laughs> I remember fondly those noises. Well, some of them fondly. <laughs> While I was preaching. Do you still have the, the steam sy system that just bangs uh, at times during the sermon? Okay, I haven't heard it yet. So, I'm, I'm, all right. It, it was quite a thing. And uh, before that, before we were here at Bachman, we were uh, in Log Cabin Chapel near the baseball fields. Uh, it had been burned a few times. It smelled awful. We called it Creosote Church. We were there for 16 years. And before that, we were in vacant storefronts in the shopping center, which everyone was empty. So I'm very thankful. Uh, our building was completed in 2003. I'm very thankful for it. But here's, here's the mystifying thing that just it's it, such a surprise. Having a building has not made us more godly. Who knew? I thought, sure, it would make me a more spiritual man. No, not at all. So I mentioned people, I mentioned possessions. Another area is circumstances, which kind of overlaps the others for a moment. We long for circumstances to go smoothly so that we can enjoy life according to our agenda. For children who are problem-free, for a spouse who doesn't disappoint, uh, good health, Perfect unity in the church. These are good things again. But what happens to your contentment if you don't get that job or if you get passed over for promotion, uh, if you lose your health? 
Betsy and I are right now on a cancer journey for her that we did not expect. No one plans to have a son with a severe learning disability or regularly ruined plans due to bouts of migraine headaches or a spouse who is verbally cruel or to be forced out of a job, a good job because of an HR complaint from an, uh, an incompetent worker or a 30-year marriage ending in an unexpected divorce or a son who has refused to talk to you for the last 19 years. No one plans for those things. Those are not things that you long for. This world is broken. It's fallen. So we don't yearn for circumstances in the sense that we want heaven on earth on earth. That's not going to happen. And another question I have to ask myself is, would I ever grow spiritually if I didn't have those challenges? If I didn't have some of those challenges? Would I ever grow in the Lord if I didn't have to navigate those inevitable detours that happens in our lives? I, you know that list of Paul's sufferings that I read to you from First, Second Corinthians 11? Dangerous from danger. All, all that stuff, all the beatings and everything. Here's the crazy thing about that. There's more. Second Corinthians was written on the third missionary journey. You want to know what else Paul suffered? You want to add to the list? Go from Acts 21 to 28, and you can add the rest of that. There's another shipwreck in there, by the way. And then go to the... Um, Pass to the uh, prison epistles, uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and harvest things from those. You can see more that Paul suffered. And then go to the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and then you harvest a little bit more from that. That's a lot of suffering, folks. That's quite a lot. When you, when you, when you look at that, you realize that Paul's ideal ministry plan did not contain those things what would be a fun ministry and then dealing with that kind of list but what enabled Paul to cope with shipwrecks imprisonments beatings and an awful chronic illness what enabled him was my grace is enough for you Christ was everything it was the source of his contentment because godly character is forced is forged in those detours of life, those plan Bs of life, if we can put it that way. I, I told you I wanted us to focus on two verses and two words, and we've looked at verse 9. My grace is enough for you, because God gives us himself. But there's also verse 10, and I'll, I'll just spend a couple of moments there. here. In verse 10, he says, Therefore, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties, in behalf of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He doesn't just say, I tolerate or I endure, but I delight in weaknesses. That's the best translation here. Jimmy pointed this out to me. This is the same word that's used of the father delighting in the son at his baptism. I didn't, hadn't caught that, and he was right. I looked it up. Of the 21 occurrences of this in the New Testament, Seven of them are of the Father delighting 
in the sun. So it, it actually has a very unexpected meaning here. The word means exactly that. It's not a neutral word. So grasp how that, this fits together. Paul is saying, while he doesn't like everything that happens to him, God's grace is enough because God is enough. He gives us himself. Therefore, Paul delights in his challenges. They are not detours. Even if Satan has his hand in it. Remember, it's a messenger from Satan. Remember Satan's message? Hey, God is not enough. There's more. That's the message. But here, even, even though Satan has his hand in it, all these things that have come into my life have first passed through God's hands. And God's purpose is to make me ready for heaven, to fit me for what is life indeed. James chapter 1 begins with those same words. Consider it all joy. Paul's, I delight in this. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What's the result? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what's the outcome? Verse 9, power is perfected in weakness, and the power of Christ may dwell in me. In what possible sense, because of all the things that you've described here, in what possible sense, power? Paul adds in verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's the paradox. Number one, God is in control. And I recognize that God could have made my circumstances different, but he chose not to. So, Therefore, number two, God has a purpose in my circumstances, whether I recognize it now or later or in heaven. He is working things towards my eternal good. Now, so what we have so far is, number one, God is in control. Number two, God knows what he's doing. Therefore, this necessarily follows, number three, God is in control. God knows what he's doing. Therefore, I can trust him. I can rest in him and be content. Because whatever fruit he is producing from whatever thorn is in my life, whatever fruit he is producing, get this, is not explainable in terms of you. It points beyond you to your Savior. This means that I have to reorient my thinking about my struggles, and that may take time, sometimes a long time, but God is patient. The goal of contentment is not to be satisfied with what you have, although that's a good thing. The goal ultimately is to be satisfied with God himself who gave you what you have. Satan says, you don't have it, but you deserve it. Look at his job. Look at his wife. Look at her children. You can't be content until you have what they have. Compare. And God says, my child, you have me. I am enough. And your final contentment awaits being in my presence. For now, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the awesome perfecter of your faith. We all have goals towards which we strive. It's good, it's good to have them. It's good to be content with people, with circumstances, with possessions, but not in them. Not in them.
My heavenly Father loves me so much, he gave his only begotten Son to die on the mission field for me. My Savior is the God who loves me so much, he'd rather die than live without me. And so we can all sing, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. We are content in him, not for what he does, but for who he is. Is he enough for you? Lord, I thank you for this meditation in your word. And I ask, Lord, that your spirit would continue the process of transforming us by the renewing of our minds and that our imaginations would be formed by that which is good and pure and true. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.